course, you just heard at the top hour news, everyone has been discussing this huge bombshell today. A separation announcement after 18 years married. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Sophie Gregoire Trudeau have announced that they are separating. This is extremely rare to have an announcement like this come down well in office. Um, and they both, they both, excuse me, issued the same uh, announcement on their social medias. On Justin Trudeau's Instagram page, he wrote, Hi everyone, Sophie and I would like to share the fact that after many meaningful and difficult conversations, we have made the decision to separate. As always, we remain a close family with deep love and respect for each other and for everything we have built and will continue to build. For the well-being of our children, we ask that you respect our and their privacy. Thank you. Now, it's interesting that comments haven't been disabled for this post. There are almost 20,000 comments on this Instagram post from the prime minister. Um, There's a lot that are really ugly. There's a lot of bullying. There's a lot of harassment. And I think we need to remember that there are human beings going through this and there's a level of sensitivity and kindness that I would hope Canadians would have. It's not all bad. There is a lot of outpouring of support and understanding and empathy. Uh, But I mean, it really, I think, signals that there is a lot of interest here and there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of curiosity about what the next piece of the puzzle is in this story. So we're going to talk a little bit about just the impact of separation on on someone in such a public role as the prime minister and how strange it is that this announcement came down while he's still in office. Our guest is clinical director and founder of the Toronto Family Therapy and Mediation, Joanna Seidel. Joanna, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your show. There is, as I mentioned, uh, a lot of speculation about this specific story, and that's really all that we can do. There are very few details. So I want to just talk a little bit about the impact of some going through something like this. I'm sure it's relatable to many people listening that have gone through a separation, ultimately a divorce. Does the announcement, in your opinion, of the separation suggest that ultimately a divorce is a certainty? I wouldn't imagine that they would announce a separation lightly. I mean, I can't speak to the certainty, you know, of their separation. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could speak to that. Hmm. I wonder. I guess in most cases, is the separation period usually um, a trial in a sense? What generally leads people to get to that point? Is it is it sort of just the beginning stages of a divorce? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, so I think that every family, you know, makes this decision under different circumstances for different reasons. Um, My hope for families is when they're contemplating separation, that they are very thoughtful about it, um, that they go through the process in their mind, and then they get professional help so they can understand, like, what is entailed um, during the process of separation, you know, in terms of what what does that mean for their children? How are their children going to cope with it? What does that mean financially? What does that mean parenting-wise? What does that mean, like, is there, you know, for residential moves, what are their biggest fears around separating? So I think that when someone, any family decides to take that step, I'm hoping that they did it thoughtfully and they thought, you know, critically about it and they just, mm. you know, got different perspectives on the situation. 
you know, I'm I'm seeing the rhetoric all over social media, and you kind of naturally expect that this one is going to be a thread uh, that you'll see, and that that's that public relations relationships, excuse me, seem like they're doomed to fail, Joanna. It seems like so many celebrities and public figures that are really in the public eye um, end up divorced. Can you speak a little bit to the pressures that a couple in this high profile a situation would face that we? everyone else might take for granted? Well, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like, you know, having a marriage and being, you know, being having being married and having a family and being in the public spotlight. I can imagine it comes with a unique set of difficulties that, you know, somebody else just, you know, kind of going about their family life doesn't experience. Um, because a public figure would get a lot of media attention and a lot of public exposure, and that could put a lot of strain on a marriage for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the, the lack of privacy and what that must mean, like, you know, the expectations of each other um, that, you know, that are about being uh, in the public figure, right? So I can imagine that that would put a lot of stress on the marriage. Um, a public figure also usually has you know, a very busy job. So that, again, could put a lot of stress on the marriage and time restrictions to spend time with the family. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine a, a myriad of difficulties in, you know, being a married couple in the public spotlight. Um, so, th- you know, those are what come to my mind. Yeah, you know, and I think there are unique pressures to being a public figure in politics, especially when we're talking about our prime minister. You know, I think there's a there's a lot of roles that need to be played. And I think the idea of of needing to portray this perfect family image is a component of being a, a, a politician. And I think that that also would lend itself to a certain amount of challenges to have to portray this this feeling that you might not actually be containing when there's maybe more going on under the surface. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's not a reality of life. Like as we live through our cycle of life, we're bound to hit hard times, right? Whether you're a public figure or whether you're just an average person, right? And, um, you know, those who are public figures, you know, are scrutinized for the hard times that they hit, but, you know, seeing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of clients, you know, over the years of my practice, I can, I can tell you, I can't tell you how many families and how many marriages have had difficulties and hit hard times in their lives. So it's kind of the natural cycle of life, but it is scrutinized in the media for public figures. You know, when you talk about your clients and sort of this natural phase of life, I mean, certainly we can't paint everyone with the same brush. And as we mentioned, and we can't emphasize this enough that we're speculating when it comes to this situation because we just don't have all the information. It's interesting to me that these two have been married for 18 years. It makes me wonder, Joanna, if there are certain time frames in a marriage that present that, that typically present issues. Are there, you know, kind of benchmarks, like maybe at the 10-year mark or the 20-year mark or the 30-year mark where things tend to maybe need a little bit of a re-examine and get a little bit rocky? Can you measure it in that way? I don't think you can. Lately, I've been seeing separation and divorce across the board, right? It could be in the very first stage in the marriage before 
you know, a couple has starts their family. It could be right as, you know, I've seen separations during pregnancy and when there's newborns um, in the family. And then, of course, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, you know, there there, there are so many um, times where this could happen. I think there are periods in a marriage where there's maybe some extra strain, you know, like, for example, having young children could be a extra strain. COVID sure. was a huge strain, right? So I think marriages are sometimes are about weathering the storm together. And when it gets stormy, that's when it puts a lot of pressure on the marriage and, and, and some don't aren't able to stay together and support each other through the storms. You know, we talk about the breakdown of a marriage involving kids. I think so many Canadians can relate to that. Unfortunately, there are three kids that are involved here. What are some of the necessary steps that need to be taken when it comes to separating with children that people should be really mindful of? Well, I think the first step is, is that be honest and open with them and, you know, maintain open communication with your children so that they're aware of their family situation and the parents are being honest and authentic about what's happening in their lives and, you know, supporting them through any challenging times. Um, so I think that's really really important is to be transparent, to be honest with children and allow them to have the space to express themselves and their feelings and their concerns. Um, I also think that um, if you do decide to separate, um, that co-parenting cooperation is, you know, very predictive of children having a positive outcome after a family separation. And the most important thing for children is for them to continue to have a positive relationship with both of their parents if that's what they had with their parents, you know, when their family was together. Mm. There's um, an announcement that the family will be together on vacation beginning next week. What does that suggest in terms of the dynamic that they're that they potentially seem to be trying to create here? I think that's absolutely wonderful. And I think that's there. They're, it sounds like they're trying to create um, a really wonderful family environment for their children. And then, you know, it seems like merit, marriages can break down and marriages can fall apart. And it it's a marital separation, but families can still very much have some pieces that remain intact and stable. So when children know that they have their family, their parents who always have their back and can spend time together as a family or go to their activities or pick them up from school or go to school events or um, go on even family holiday together, I can imagine that those children feel safe and supported even if their parents' marriage isn't working. You know, with him still in office, he's still prime minister, I wonder how difficult of a time he'll have. What's the emotional process that's typical when going through a separation while ultimately still having incredible pressure at work? Yeah, I think, you know, going through a separation can be a very trying time. I mean, so, you you know, you have to separate um, your, your life with your partner in so many ways, which can be stressful. Um, and I think that it can be time consuming, 
But as long as you're getting the right professional support and you have a good team to guide you and navigate you through the process, I think you're, you, you can compartmentalize your roles in life, right? Like there are so many people who are separating these days and they have to remain functional at work and at home for their children, even though they might be struggling emotionally. Joanna, thank you so much for your insight this evening. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, too. You may have noticed some changes on social media. Some of the news pages that you follow on Instagram and Facebook are now showing you, likely, uh, that a, a pop-up that says Canadians can't view this content. So this all goes back to Bill C-18, otherwise known as the Online News Act. So Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is now making good on its promise to block Canadian news on their pages. So the intention of Bill C-18 was to force the hand of these websites to start paying for Canadian news if the sites post links to their content. But will this ultimately have a detrimental effect on Canadian news as a whole? Let's get into it right now with our guest, professor of the School of Journalism, Writing and Media at the University of British Columbia and co-founder of The Conversation Canada, Alfred Hermida. Alfred, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Chelsea. Let's just speak a little bit more about Bill C-18 and what the true intention is behind it. Essentially, it's to try to give news outlets some deserved money, right? Yes and no. Um, Yes, the intention is to try to help news outlets, which are struggling because the advertising model that we've had for the last 100 years plus has basically shifted online and largely to help the print industry. Newspapers in the past century would get would have profits of up to 30 percent because they had all the classifieds, display advertising, the real estate, all these all these products. That's all moved online, and now Google um, and Meta have 75 to 80% of that digital advertising market. And what this bill is saying, well, let's redistribute some of that wealth so that the news publishers that have lost all this revenue will get some of it back. So it seems like the intentions are good, but what incentive is there for companies like Meta and Google to have to pay these outlets? What was interesting is that both Meta and Google have been actually funding journalism for the last few years. They've been involved in 130 plus projects supporting journalism through grants, through training, through funding local reporters, through Google is paying publishers to appear on Google Showcase. So uh, there's been a lot of money that Canadian news organizations have already been getting from Google and Facebook. Mm. But the key thing here is there's no law forcing them to do that. They were doing this essentially to keep good relations with with news publishers. Um, The difference here is that this would force them to give journalism organizations money. And neither Meta or Google want to be in a position where they're legislated to do this. They want to be able to decide on their own terms what they fund, who they fund, and how much they fund. And they don't want to be told what to do by the government. You know, you talk about... Our news and newspapers specifically going now into a digital format and moving primarily online. Can we quantify how many people are getting their news online from places like Facebook, Instagram and Google? Well, we know that um, the Internet, including social media, is the, the 
top source for Canadians. Um, But of course, Canadians get their news from a whole range of sources. Social media and television are the second most important source. 50% of Canadians get their news from TV and social. And in social, of course, Facebook is part of that mix, but also YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, um, and other emerging social platforms. The key thing is people don't get their news just from Facebook or just from CKNW or just from Global News. They get it from all of these and their friends and from Facebook and from things they see on Instagram. So the the worry and this sort of detrimental effect that, you know, we're scared that this is going to have on the news industry, is that justified? I think the situation now is lose-lose for everybody concerned because Meta and Google don't want to be regulated. They don't want to be told what to do related to news. So they said, we'll just pull out of Canada. Now, that's going to harm news organizations that were either getting money already through schemes with Google and with Meta, but also they're going to lose the exposure. Um, Some publishers, especially local publishers, would get maybe a third of their visitors from posts that people share on Facebook, especially when you think about local community news. How often have you seen a friend posting something that they've seen in the Vancouver Sun or maybe in the Tai, and they post it to Facebook because they know that other people in that community will be interested in it? And that's what we're going to lose. It makes Canadians poorer for news, and it doesn't actually help the news industry because they lose the funding they're already getting from Meta Mm -hmm. and from Google. You know, it makes me wonder, too, about startups. Without this reach of social media, are we expecting that we'll see lots of startups fail? Well, one of the things that's interesting is we've seen more, almost 150 startups in journalism in Canada in the last couple of decades. And a lot of them are focused on local news. So, yeah, part of when you're doing a startup is you need to tell people you exist. Social media is a great way of building and developing those audiences, especially at the local level. And that is... Uh, concerning one of the big sort of startup groups called Village Media in Ontario has a range of local news sites there. They're really worried because they're saying if if Google and Meta go through with all of this, that's half of their visitors gone overnight. And that's going to be a big hit for a local news um, set of sites like Village Media. So what what are the potential implications? And I know you don't have a crystal ball here, but, you know, for the news industry as a whole... Well, I think with this, the difference with, with, with what's happening in Australia when this, this law is modeled on that is Australia introduced a similar law. It was passed, but it was never put into force in the sense that Facebook and Google were allowed to make the deals without having to comply with the law. The law was there and they could apply it to Google and Facebook, but it wasn't applied to them. And instead, Google and Facebook were able to make their own deals, which they did. In Canada, there doesn't seem to be a way out of the platforms not being regulated. And this is what's at the core of it. Mm -hmm. Certainly, platforms like Meta and Google have so much power, not just in digital advertising, but in how we connect, how we search, how we find out about things, how we communicate with others through WhatsApp, how we share our photos through Instagram. Just think of the ways you use all these, how these social media services and Google services are, are embedded in the way all of us run our lives. Mm-hmm. So they have so much power. This measure is part of trying to rein in that power. And the platforms, of course, are saying, nope, we don't want to be regulated. We don't want to be told what to do. It's like 1984. You have a prime minister passing a law 
to make news articles disappear from the internet. Who would ever have imagined that in Canada, the federal government would pass laws banning people from effectively seeing the news? Well, that's the fallout of Bill C-18. Uh, the intention was, of course, to try to encourage some of these sites to pay for those news sources. And they're saying they're not going to. So Google and Meta now will block Canadian news. Uh, our guest is professor of the School of Journalism, Writing and Media at the University of British Columbia and co-founder of The Conversation Canada, Alfred Hermida. Alfred, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time. Of course. You know, we're talking, of course, about what now will be available on sites like Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, it comes to mind for me, the idea of misinformation. Anything posted won't be from a credible source and therefore misinformation will run even more rampant, won't it? Well, this is one of the big questions because Meta said it will block news from essentially Canadian news organizations. So Mm -hmm. organizations that are considered reliable, uh, that are considered professional and using the criteria that the federal government is using to fund journalism itself. What that means is you'll get, uh, let's put it this way, sketchier news providers, maybe mm-hmm. more on the fringe, maybe more on the conspiracy side, who won't be captured by this because they won't be seen as professional news services. They'll still be able to post their material on social media. And the, the risk is you won't see the reliable information. And this is important for things like, you know, breaking news, times of emergencies, wildfires. We know that when there's suddenly an emergency, all sorts of rumors start to circulate on social media. And what journalists can do is step in and say, well, you might have heard these rumors. These are, this is true. This isn't true. This is what we don't know. And if you don't have Canadian journalists being able to do that through Facebook or through Instagram or through Google, if they go through with it, that is going to leave a gaping hole for misinformation to spread. Well, yeah, because it's interesting. We don't know necessarily how news is defined in this measure. So some companies, as you just touched on, you know, that kind of are are more on the fringe or at least not credible by meta standards could escape this block, essentially. Yeah, and it's not also clear if they'll also block international news organizations because they very much are talking about Canadian news organizations because this law would fund Canadian news organizations. So we might have the weird situation where this law or one of the unintended consequences make, gives much greater prominence to publications from the US, from the UK, from other English language countries than you see uh, than from Canada on Facebook and other platforms. Mm. Which would be a very strange situation in Canada where a law ends up promoting foreign content over and above Canadian content. Sure, yeah. Well, and then, you know, and on that note too, talking about other countries... Could the U.S. follow suit? There's a conversation that that might take place. Well, this is why uh, Meta and Google are taking a stand in Canada. It's not just about Canada. It's a global issue. The U.S. has been considering certain sim- similar kind of measures. California itself is considering something similar. Countries in Europe are doing the same kind of idea because the news industry is hurting the world over and the platform's dominate digital advertising and make tremendous amounts of profits. So what's happening in Canada matters to the rest of the world. And in some ways, it's that litmus test to see, will the platforms accept regulation? And for me, I think this is why Meta is taking such a hard line here. Mm -hmm. Because if it does accept the law, 
then that sets a precedent for other countries to follow suit. So what we're seeing is a global struggle being played out here in Canada. Do you anticipate that we could get to a point where we negotiate with these companies? Is that off the table at this point? Negotiate maybe a a lower charge or are they saying they just simply will not pay anything? Well, the government already has rode back in a certain way in saying that the way they would implement this law is, say, set a a limit on, on the payments and these would be negotiated with news publishers. But really, the key issue is still legislation. Both Meta and Google are happy to go into deals with news organizations on their own terms. They don't Mm. want legislation. I think what we might see is the very same news industry that has been pushing for this has now realizing that the way this is playing out is going to cause them far more harm. They're going to lose visitors, they're going to lose visibility, and they're going to lose the millions of dollars that they already have been getting from Meta and Google anyway. So they might turn to the Canadian government to heritage it and say, you know, this law we were encouraging you to put through, now it's there, it's not really having the effect we intended. Can we row back from it? Well, is the next step then for these larger news outlets to try to ask for federal funding? Could that be an option? I mean, if the idea of this was to try to get more funding for news outlets, what would a better approach have been? Well, the Canadian government already has been putting in about $600 million over the last five years to fund Canadian journalism. Sure. But that's not a long-term solution. For me, the way I see this is if you have Meta and, and Google dominating digital advertising, making tremendous amount of money out of you know, Canadian consumers, let's tax their profits. Let's tax that revenue. Let's close all the tax loopholes and then assign some of that money to support journalism. Uh, Canada has a long history of supporting cultural industries, supporting film, supporting TV, supporting journalism. I, For me, I think that to me is the obvious approach. Tax the platforms, close the loopholes and set aside some of that funding to support journalism. Failing that, which is a great idea, <laughs> are there any are there any notes of optimism here, Alfred? Is there any good news? Could this be an opportunity for some of the larger outlets? So the good news is that um, not so much for the large outlets, but certainly the smaller local startups, they've been trying to build closer relationships with their audience. And the problem with social media is you get a lot of people who might see a link click on it, go to your website and never come back or come back a month later. And when you ask people, what, where did you see that? They'll say on Facebook. And when you ask them, well, but what was the source? They'll say, oh, my friend. They mm-hmm. don't say CBC or the Globe Mail. Right. They go, my friend told me about it. Where did you see it? On <laughs> Facebook. And so that's a problem for, for most news and most pu- publishers, because if people don't know you exist, then they, they won't keep coming back. Right. So There has been a tendency to try to build more that loyal and engaged audience who knows who you are, cares about your journalism, and in some cases is willing to actually support it with with their own dollars. Alfred, thank you so much for all of your insight on this conversation. I really appreciate your time this time. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure, Chelsea. And we're going to talk really now about how Barbie helped a woman's healing from breast cancer. 
Barbie seems to be absolutely everywhere right now. Of course, the movie is a huge success. And the conversation around the doll has really shifted. What was once a really controversial character is now being seen in maybe a different light. So how does it relate back to a woman's journey healing from breast cancer? We're going to get into it right now with our senior national online journalist for Global News, Michelle Butterfield. Michelle, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Chelsea. Nice to hear from you. So uh, you wrote a great piece talking about your own experience and how it ties in with the creator of Barbie and her working career. Um, There's a lot, I think, to dive into here. Let's just first talk for some context, Michelle, about your story and your journey with breast cancer. It started when you were 36 years old. So take us back to that time in your life. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened in 2019. Um, I was diagnosed with stage three invasive ductal carcinoma, locally advanced breast cancer, complete shock, had no idea, had a young family. My children were one and three years old at the time. Um, Yeah. And so I went through treatment for a first cancer the following year, coinciding with the beginning of the pandemic. I was diagnosed with a second extremely rare breast cancer that most people have never even heard of. So from there, I ended up having a single mastectomy surgery. Luckily, I didn't have to do any more treatment beyond that. Um, And since then, I've just kind of been healing and getting my life back on track. Did it come completely out of nowhere, Michelle? Were you feeling were you feeling anything different or feeling different than your normal self? So it's a really interesting story that happens with a lot of young women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. And unfortunately, I know so many so many of these young women because I'm really connected Mm -hmm. to that community now. But a lot of young mothers are diagnosed and their symptoms are masked by breastfeeding, which was the case with me. I thought that I was having, I could feel a lump in my breast, but I thought it was like a clogged milk duct or something to do with mastitis. And I kept getting that, that breastfeeding related infection called mastitis again and again and again, going back to a physician saying, I need antibiotics again for this. And so they give them. And then finally one just looked at me and he said, you know what, you got to cut out the breastfeeding. This isn't good for you or for your son. You can't keep taking this many antibiotics, cut it out. So I stopped taking or I stopped breastfeeding my son and the lump never really went away. Unfortunately, um, had the breastfeeding not masked the symptoms, I probably would have been diagnosed earlier. But unfortunately, I was diagnosed quite late stage, stage three. You know, to to think that it's mastitis over and over again and then to continue to try to soldier on and breastfeed your son. I mean, I think it just it calls to mind. And I know that a lot of people listening will relate to this, just how much of a warrior moms and women can be uh, with young kids just trying to manage and get through it because you think that that's a normal part of your journey into motherhood. And turns out it's stage four breast cancer. How did COVID play into your recovery and any efforts to get any sort of reconstruction work done, Michelle? Um, yeah, so I was diagnosed pretty much coinciding with the beginning of the pandemic. It was like May 2020 with a second breast cancer. Um, and by that point, the hospitals were, you know, kind of falling apart at the seams. There was just huge capacity issues going on and mm-hmm. cancer, um, cancer wards were suffering as a result, right? They were only kind of taking the most urgent cases, they were only doing the most urgent surgeries. So they said, well, we need to remove your right breast, but we can't offer you reconstruction. Another reason behind that was 
as well to nine months previous, I had had 33 rounds of radiation, which can be really difficult on your skin. So they said, you know, we can't offer you a reconstruction, but it's probably not a good time anyway. Let's wait a little bit longer. Eventually you will be able to have reconstruction. But for now, we're just going to remove the one breast and then you'll heal, recover, and, and then we'll decide what to do, you know, when things improve a little bit and when we have, when we have more capacity for surgery. So this then sort of starts bringing us back to how Barbie ties into this and the conversation around prosthetics. The creator of Barbie eventually got to a point in her career where uh, breasts and prosthetic breasts really, uh, I think, shaped what she ultimately went on to go do and, and make her ultimate legacy. But it started first with creating this doll. So let's talk a little bit about Ruth Handler and who she was and her creation of Barbie. And bear with us. We'll get back to how this all relates to your <laughs> breast cancer healing journey, Michelle. For sure. Yeah. So Ruth Handler, she's the um, inventor of Barbie. She was the CEO of Mattel for a long time, took a break in there due to some issues with the law and came back to work at Mattel eventually later in her career. But she's credited with starting Barbie and um, inventing Barbie. She wanted to create a doll for young girls to play with that went beyond sort of the cherubic baby type dolls that were prevalent all over the market. So she designed this um, grown up doll. It was meant to resemble a teenager or a young woman, you know, obviously a very full chest, the, the tucked waist, you know, the very curvaceous figure. She was quite, Barbie was quite scandalous when she was first released onto the market. And that was kind of before, you know, a lot of feminists took issue with what Barbie came to represent, mm. but she was still very, a very polarizing figure right from the very beginning. And the, the creator, Ruth Handler, uh, pretty a, a force, I would say, uh, of a woman in terms of her career aspirations and what she intended for Barbie to represent. I mean, it was really all about, creating um, a, a woman doll where little girls could look up to her and say, look, if she wants to change her clothes and be an astronaut, she can be. Or if she is a doctor to you, then she's a doctor. You know, the I think the idea sort of got muddied in the controversy surrounding her image and the way that she looked. And not to say that any of that is invalid, because I think there's another conversation to be had around that. But the idea mm -hmm. of her being something that you could aspire to be uh, was was relatively new in that time yeah. period. Yeah, Barbie broke the plastic ceiling, as they call it, right? She went to space. <laughs> she became an astronaut four years before Neil Armstrong ever landed on the moon. She has she owned a bank account before women were allowed to own bank accounts. She owned her her own home before women would have been allowed to do that in North America. You know, she was really a trailblazer in a lot of ways. I think, and, and you said it very succinctly. You know, the waters got muddied because. Grown-ups started projecting their own ideas of what Barbie was onto Barbie, mm -hmm. but I think Handler's, I think Ruth Handler's idea was Barbie is for little girls to, you know, really be what they want her to be. So we've talked a little bit about your story and your journey with breast cancer and the creator of Barbie and how she relates to all of this is that once she stopped working at Mattel, she then created prosthetic breasts. Talk a little bit about Ruth Handler's creation of prosthetic breasts at that time and how necessary they were to the market. What existed prior to her creating what was a female-made breast prosthetic? 
Yeah, so Ruth Handler created the modern breast prosthetic as we know it out of need. She underwent her own breast breast cancer diagnosis. She was still at the helm of Mattel at the time, and she secretly underwent her treatment. And in the aftermath of her, so she had a single mastectomy, one breast removed, so she was looking for options to fill out her figure to make it look like um, her pre-cancer self, as so many breast cancer patients look for that option. Um, But at the time, women didn't have a lot of options. You know, they could stuff their bra with tissue or socks. There were some contraptions that were designed that were held up by various belts um, or like straps, which were very uncomfortable. Some were made of thick rubber, which were obviously not very breathable. They would cause rashes and sores. There just wasn't very many great options. The other thing that was a problem is anything that was on the market that time was pretty unrealistic looking. Breasts on the left and right, they're shaped differently. And these existing prosthetics, um, they didn't really mimic that shape. So it wasn't leading to a natural figure. It wasn't, you know, giving these women their, their form back in any sort of way. It looked very unnatural. So Ruth Handler set out to create something that she, not only she wanted to wear, but that other people were asking for. Um, and she and she did it. She built a prosthetic that looks, the, there are photos in my article, if you find it online, you can see photos of these prosthetic breasts that she built. And they look almost identical to the one that I wear today. It's actually quite amazing how advanced her technology was. Even back then, this was in the 70s. So not much has changed since her first uh, prototype. I think she is such a pioneer and such a champion for women's self-esteem. I'm sure that, you know, you could speak to the fact, Michelle, after having gone through a a breast amputation, there's a certain amount of probably your own perceived femininity that feels really attacked in a situation like that. And I think to be able to create something to sort of give that back to a woman is really valuable. You know, and she she talked extensively about that um, through interviews with the press. You know, she went on all the late night talk shows and stuff, and she really hammered that home. She said through her own experience, after being this respected female executive her entire life, when she lost her breast, she really felt as though she had lost her femininity. And when I read those words, I had no idea about any of this until just very recently, you know, kind of digging into the Barbie Barbie discourse with the movie coming out. I had no idea about any of this and how much credit I actually owed it to Ruth Handler for how I've been able to reclaim my pre-cancer body and how I've been able to feel more comfortable in my skin post-cancer. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, Michelle, I had no idea about any of this either. And I was reading your article, pouring over it. It's so interesting. I mean, I think you need to make this into a, into a documentary or something because she deserves to be really celebrated for the fact that she was able to create this. And I think it's so fascinating and you know, kind of ironic that she went from creating this doll who so much controversy existed and surrounded because of her, its breasts to then creating yeah. something that could replicate and mimic the real thing for women who really need it. I mean, it's sort of a, a thumb to the nose of the people who criticized her for creating the doll, Barbie, which then she went on to ultimately create something that's just so invaluable to women and something that is One, still being used in its similarity to today. Exactly. One tidbit that I absolutely love is in her obituary, there was a quote and it came directly from Hamlet herself. And she said, 
I lived my life breast to breast. And I just thought that that was so apt and, you know, just a little tongue in cheek, but also very sweet. And, and it's just a really surprising um, tidbit from her life that I don't think that a lot of people know, but that really should be celebrated because she just, she helped young girls, but then she also helped women so much as well too, with, with both inventions. So it's not an insignificant sure. contribution. No, not at all. She it was absolutely remarkable. And, you know, you talk in your article too, Michelle, about Barbie as a doll. And I think we're sort of reframing our understanding of what she was intentionally meant to represent mm-hmm. now with the, all the conversation that we're having about Barbie because of the success of the movie. You know, but I think so much of the controversy has now been sort of shed away and we're recognizing the fact that she was meant to be something that was an aspirational figure. And now you talk about this in your article. She looks different than that very typical model that was criticized specifically for her body type. She's really come a long way. Yeah, she has. In part, I think, I I think a lot of that has to do with Mattel having out of, you know, business necessities, they had to pivot, right? They weren't getting away with having the tall, buxom, white Barbie. They needed to expand representation. But I will give Mattel a lot of credit in that they didn't just go so far as, you know, offering like a different, shorter Barbie or a darker skin Barbie. They've, in especially in recent years, they've gone the extra step to really um, choose representation for their Barbie dolls. So now we have like a Down syndrome Barbie, for instance. We have um, Barbies with a variety of figures, a variety of heights, a variety of skin tones and hair textures, you know, and her career catalog just continues to expand. So I, I think that, one, they had to do it at a business necessity, but I think that it is making more um, young girls and women feel seen in their toy line, which should always be celebrated. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say as a parent of a young girl who's now just over two years old and and definitely interested in the idea of Barbies and princesses, it's reassuring to me that there's a different option than just that that very whitewashed look. My daughter's biracial and I don't want her playing with just a fully white blonde Barbie. That doesn't make any sense for her. So, you know, it really, it does matter. And I think it's important to see that change in the market. So Michelle, what a wonderful article. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing so much of your own journey and so much of your discovery about Ruth Handler. What an interesting woman. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is Chelsea Bird, your guest host for tonight and for the rest of the week. Fill in for Ben O'Hara. Bird, welcome to a little more conversation. Glad to have you here listening wherever you are listening from all across the Chorus Radio Network. Remember, you can subscribe and favorite the A Little More Conversation podcast if you want to hear past episodes or past interviews. You can get more details, of course, too, at alittlemoreconversation.com. So we're going to have a conversation about something that seems like a soap opera, but unfortunately, uh, this is real life. So another indictment against Donald Trump. This one now having to do with a potential conspiracy to cling to power no matter the cost. So a lot of questions about, is this the most serious set of charges yet? Four charges rest on the claim that Trump and his co-conspirators knew that he lost the 2020 election and that his claims of fraud and voting irregularity made before and on January 6th, we all remember what happened on January 6th, were unfounded. 
So let's talk a little bit about what this charge means, what the potential repercussions could be, and what this means for his political future with our guest, Foundation Professor of Law and Political Science at Arizona State University, Stephanie Lindquist. Stephanie, thank you so much for making the time. Chelsea, thanks a lot. Happy to be here. I mean, this is such an interesting conversation that just continues to have more and more detail coming out. Let's talk about this latest indictment. So what exactly are the details here, Stephanie, that we do know? Sure. Um, This is an extraordinary indictment, obviously, charging a president uh, with a conspiracy to block uh, the lawful uh, counting and certification of electoral votes for the presidency. And um, it charges basically four different acts by the president. One is that he lied to the public and lied to his co-conspirators and lied to to everyone about fraud and irregularities in the election, as you pointed out. Uh, Second, he used those lies to pressure government officials to overturn the vote uh, in in individual states, including Georgia and Arizona, etc., Third, he uh, orchestrated this a uh, program, a conspiracy to identify false electors across a number of swing states, uh, and those false electors did fa- did actually sign false certifications and send them to Washington D.C. in an effort to convince Mike Pence to uh, essentially use those certifications to stop the electoral count. And finally, he fomented violence on January 6th pressure Mike Pence to do so. And so all of these various acts, along with his, uh, his conspirators, uh, ultimately, uh, was, Jack Smith concluded, uh, were in violation of various federal laws that prohibits the use of dishonesty, fraud, or deceit to obstruct a government function, among other things. And so an extraordinary and most important, for sure, the most important indictment that has brought, been brought against him to date. And I think one that he's going to have a really tough time squirming out of. What has he said about this latest indictment? What has he said about it? Yeah. Well, of course, he he denies everything. And and his defenders claim that he has a First Amendment right to make false claims, a free speech right to make false claims if he chooses to do so about anything. And so that will likely be the defense. And also his defense will be that he... Uh, actually was convinced and believed uh, that the elections were fraudulent, um, that there was, you know, dead people voting, et cetera. And he'll claim that, therefore, he did not engage in any conspiracy to obstruct uh, the certification of the vote knowingly, because the statute has a standard. The law has a standard. And the standard is that you cannot be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt unless you knowingly violated the statute. And so what he'll claim is that he didn't knowingly violate anything. What he thought was that he was doing the right thing to protect American democracy. What's the reaction? I mean, you're you're speaking to us here in Canada from Arizona State University. Obviously, you can't do a temperature check on the entirety of the United States. But what's the reaction to this latest set of charges? Well, you know, the reaction as everything has been relative to Donald Trump uh, in the last six years or seven years is polarized. Um, The reaction from his base is that this is yet another effort to persecute him by the Biden Department of Justice uh, in an effort to undermine one of Biden's main competitors in the 2024 election. 
Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, for those Americans who have already been convinced that Donald Trump has engaged in criminal action, including uh, paying hush money uh, to a porn star or uh, uh, obstructing justice relative to classified documents that he was housing within his estate at Mar-a-Lago. Um, those individuals see this as yet another piece of the puzzle uh, to Donald Trump's criminality. And so as everything has been with Donald Trump, I think, as I said before, uh, this is a polarized reaction. And it has had, as far as I know, zero in- impact on his base. Which is wild. And th- I mean, that's leading me to my next question, the idea that there must be some people that are falling off with their support. And yet it seems to remain stable. It's it's so odd. I mean, it makes certainly for an interesting case study, but uh, definitely a threat to democracy and the implications well, that that could have. Absolutely. I mean, as I saw recently, a, a commentator noted that Donald Trump is not just a candidate. He's a cause to those of his followers that are so mm-hmm. committed to him. Mm-hmm. And that cause really is embodied the notion that um, he is the representative of them relative to what they call the deep state, um, to a cabal of politicians who fail to appreciate their interests in politics. And so he really is, I think, a leader of a cause. And once you have individuals who are committed to that cause, no matter the leader's, you know, foibles and, and, you know, shortcomings, that doesn't matter because what matters is the cause. And he represents that cause. And that's why I think is the best explanation I've heard as to why Donald Trump's popularity with his base fails to be dislodged by any uh, of these indictments that have come forth to date. Notwithstanding people's sort of thought that perhaps cumulatively these indictments might start to have an eroding effect on that base. That has not occurred. Well, you would certainly think so, but I think that's that's what makes this so interesting and so polarizing. What a great way to put that, Stephanie. Polarized is, I think, exactly where we all stand in the States and in Canada when it comes to anything to do with Trump. I, I, I wonder what kind of tensions this creates, because you talk about this sort of division and these sides that people take, and it feels that we're very divided. So does it just increase that felt tension almost to a boiling point? Oh, it's very, very worrisome, Chelsea, that it does indeed do that. And one must be concerned about what will happen during the trials. Now, we have no idea how Trump will react to being a criminal defendant in a trial. But we do have cause to be concerned about these trials um, becoming show trials for Trump. I mean, you can imagine how he might be able to use these to his benefit, even if they take him off the campaign trail. One must wonder whether he even needs to be on the campaign trail if during his trial he's able to use those as a platform to demonstrate to his constituency and to the Republican Party that he is being persecuted. Uh, And this has been affected by other authoritarians in the past to use trials that they're subject to as, again, platforms for their political um, agendas. And so I am very concerned about what this may lead to. And indeed, there's already been plenty of death threats against individuals who dared to challenge uh, his uh, allegations of fraud in the election, including, you know, election officials across the state who have received death threats. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple of election officials in Georgia actually had to move 
because they were being so threatened uh, by violence. So, yes, we have a lot of reason to be concerned about violence going forward as a result of this. That doesn't mean the indictments are the wrong thing to do, by no means. But Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, you know, the consequences will be uh, considerable and profound, potentially, for the American democracy. I just want to clarify, because you touched a little bit on the trial. We don't know yet details about what that trial could look like or a potential timeline yet, do we? We don't, although we certainly know that Jack Smith wants to get this business ongoing as quickly as possible. Um, And there is some speculation that uh, this trial might take place as early as February or March of next year. One of the reasons that Jack Smith only charged Donald Trump and not his unnamed co-conspirator in this indictment, we think, is that this streamlines the case uh, such that there need not be consideration or accommodation of co-defendants in such a trial. It will focus Mm -hmm. exclusively on Donald Trump, and that will make the trial easier to carry forth uh, in court. And I'm sure Jack Smith has every intention of having this trial take place before the election. But, of course, it will take place, if it does, in the spring of 2024, right in the middle of primary season. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is a little more conversation with me, guest host Chelsea Bird, talking about the newest indictment against Donald Trump. Uh, we've been talking about it with our guest, Foundation Professor of Law and Political Science for Arizona State University, Stephanie Lindquist. Stephanie, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time tonight. My pleasure. So we're talking about this latest indictment, um, the the four charges that essentially rest on this claim that Trump and his co-conspirators knew that he lost the 2020 election and that his claims that we all remember of fraud and voting irregularity uh, made before and on January 6, 2021, were in fact unfounded. Now, it's not shaking any support for him. He's still moving forward with his campaign for presidency, for the Republican nomination and ultimately for the presidency. And I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like right now, the reality of that. The U.S. Constitution says that he can still run, he can still campaign, and he could potentially still win the presidency even if he's facing these charges and if he's found guilty of them. Is that right, Stephanie? That is correct. The U.S. Constitution only has two requirements to be president. Uh, 35 years of age, 14 years of residency in the U.S., and a natural-born citizen. Beyond that, there are no requirements that a president not be a felon (laughs) uh, or not be under indictment. Uh, And so there's no question that uh, at the moment, notwithstanding all of these charges against him, he is a perfectly viable presidential candidate and at the moment is pulling away from Ron DeSantis, his closest competitor, for the Republican primary. So his political future in terms of his qualifications for the presidency are not under threat, as a matter of fact. Um, This is purely a political question, whether or not uh, his base or the Republican Party or his potential voters will uh, find this disqualifying. But as to the Constitution, no, it is not disqualifying. In fact, um, there have been candidates who have run from prison before. And one of the questions, Chelsea, I'm sure your your listeners are interested in is whether or not he could be president in prison. Right. Um, And, uh, of course, being in prison would be incredibly complicating uh, for a president. And there might be a situation in which he would seek uh, some kind of dispensation during the presidency to be released from prison on grounds that constitutionally it's impossible for a president to discharge his his or her duties in prison. That could happen. But... Uh, But, of course, we've never seen such a circumstance before. Uh, The founders of our great nation never expected 
to have uh, someone under these circumstances be running or even uh, a potential competitor for the presidency, let alone uh, a felon be a president. You know, I I think it just makes your head spin with the idea of what all of this could mean uh, should everything line up to to that point that you're describing, potentially winning the presidency and being in prison. And I think there are there are implications here, not just for the states, but of course for Canada as well. You know, whether you want to acknowledge that we're impacted here by the politics of the states, or at least when it comes to our allied relationship with the states, the way that we're perceived by someone who seems as volatile and dangerous as someone like Donald Trump leading the country, um, it's dangerous. I wonder what kind of precedent you think this sets for for the political future as a whole for your country, Stephanie? Well, it's, it's, it's frankly, from my perspective, um, it's deeply shameful for the United States um, to have a viable political candidate who was involved in and fomented violence on the day of what should otherwise have been a peaceful transition of power. Of course, our hallmark in Canada's as well is that we have democracies that allow for the peaceful transition of power, and we should be deeply proud of that fact. And that a candidate is now running for president and who has considerable uh, support within one of our major political parties uh, and who has been involved in uh, in events such as January 6th, of course, which we've never seen before, except uh, in the circumstances of the Civil War, where we did see violence of this nature uh, taken to an extreme. Um, But other than that, we've never seen a similar circumstance. And it is very worrisome for the United States, uh, as well as all of our allies uh, around the world, simply because Donald Trump is, you know, someone who obviously uh, is not, you know, truthful. Um, The indictment is plain that the lies about the election that he told over and over again were simply false, and he was told over and over again that they were false. Nevertheless, he, came, he went forward with his conspiracy according to the indictment. Again, these are all alleged crimes at the moment. Uh, he is innocent until proven guilty. We also appreciate that bedrock mm-hmm. principle of our democracy. Uh, but uh, but these, this, this level of dishonesty is extremely worrisome in a potential world leader, to be sure. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much uh, for sharing your thoughts on this big conversation and one that I know we will continue to have uh, for uh, the next foreseeable future. I really appreciate your time this evening. Well, thank you for such an in-depth conversation about it, Chelsea. I appreciate it, too. Me, too. Take care. This is Global News. I'm Kareem Gouda. Owen Rose stepped into a surreal scene when he arrived at Gun Lake north of Whistler, B.C. on Monday to see the wildfire flames cresting a hill on the lake's south side as the Downton Lake blaze flared. He watched the flames progress slowly on Tuesday until the winds kicked up and drove the fire down onto several cabins across the lake, which Rose says were lost within just a few hours. So it has a sort of sense of Lord of the Rings devastation and awe-inspiring, wow, I can't believe this is happening, and uh, it's a pretty scary feeling. But on our side of the lake, we felt safe with a fear that, what if? What if the winds change in a way that the embers affect our side? And if the embers affect our side, it would have spread just as quickly. An evacuation order covering more than 200 properties around the lake was issued on Tuesday and quickly upgraded to critical, urging many seasonal and a handful of permanent residents to leave for Lillooet or Whistler.
And in medical news, diabetes drug Ozempic has been raising concerns in terms of safety, but experts fear that the negative experiences of a few might prevent others to benefit from it. Some weeks I can vomit up to 200 times. Five years ago, Emily Wright's doctor prescribed Ozempic for her type 2 diabetes. She says she's lost around 150 pounds, but now is living with a paralyzed stomach. Ozempic has ruined my understanding of food and my relationship with food, and I have no understanding or knowledge of you know when I'm going to get better. She's often bedridden, can barely eat, and needs a nurse to administer fluids three times a week. Wright believes the symptoms are connected to using Ozempic. This diabetes researcher says gastrointestinal effects like Wright's happen to a small amount of people. He hopes the negative tales don't undermine the benefits for many patients. The GI side effects, they are real. A lot of people will get them. But generally, they're not going to cause people to um, be unable to take the medication. This drug, also popularly known for weight loss, has also been used by celebrities. From the Global Newsroom, I'm Kareem Gouda. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, this is a little more conversation. My name is Chelsea Birdie, your guest host for tonight. I mean, how can you hear that audio not smile just a little bit? You probably have a memorable concert experience yourself. Uh, but that, of course, could only be from Taylor Swift. She's essentially taken over the world at this point. Her Eras tour, even though it's not coming to Canada, has been making headlines. The latest is that at one of the shows in Seattle, seismic activity was recorded. So this is likely because of jumping, dancing, and some parts of the music maybe all playing into it. So why not get the perspective from someone who was there? She's part of our show. In fact, she's the one that's steering the entire ship, making sure that we're actually on the air. Our technical producer, Talia Miller, went to Taylor Swift in Seattle last weekend. Talia, I know you said on Monday you were wearing your Taylor Swift concert t-shirt. Are you still coming down from the experience? Are you still riding that Taylor Swift high? Oh, absolutely. It feels like a fever dream at this point, Chelsea. Even the <laughs> moment the concert ended and I was in my hotel room, I closed my eyes and all I could see was the venue and all I could hear was her music. Like I'm like, was I there? I have the photos. <laughs> I have the merch. I was clearly there. Like, it all happened, but it doesn't feel like it happened. Do you know what I mean? I Yes. I, I think when, when something really profound happens to you like that, yeah, when you go to <laughs> sleep, you feel like you're sort of still experiencing it, like you're still living it. I'm wondering, when something like this has so much buildup, I mean, we know that Taylor's not coming to Canada, at least not yet, and you're traveling mm-hmm. to go to the States and you're planning something out like this, does it live up to the hype? Can it? Can it ever meet those expectations? And your experience did it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've been a fan of her since I was in the sixth grade. And this was the first time I got to see her in person and hear all of my favorite songs that got me through high school, college, the last few years since I've moved to Vancouver. So it was quite like, it is an heiress tour, but it was almost like a greatest hits tour so far Mm. for her music, which was so wonderful to like, hear and see because sometimes when artists go on tour you know they play the whole album and then you never hear those songs they never play them live again and she really does a great job of covering almost every single album yeah I think this is a true experience and something that 
you know, she understands as an artist who she is and who she who she represents to her fans, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, she is arguably the biggest pop star of this generation. So I think for her to put on a show like that, it doesn't surprise me that it's just nothing but the hits and spectacle and show. <laughs> I know that in some concerts, people have been collecting rainwater from the concert venue and then selling it. Like We've heard some crazy things about what's taken place at Taylor Swift's concerts. So talk a little bit about the experience. How immersive was it? What was the actual show itself like? It, could you compare it to other concerts or was it really just something off on its own? For me, it was definitely off on its own. Like the, it I can't even describe what it was like being in that venue. That venue was so full of love and everyone knew the song and the lyrics. Like at some points it was kind of hard to hear Taylor because you just had (laughs) everyone else screaming and singing the lyrics, which was also so validating that other people felt that intensity while like listening to her songs. And even around, oh, like an hour, because it's a three and a half hour set list. So about an hour in where we were sitting, we could see the entrance to Lumen Field. And I saw this big crowd and I was like, man, are still people trying to like get in? Like she's already on stage. And then I did a double take and I looked around the arena and every seat was full. And I realized that that was just a crowd of people listening to her who couldn't get tickets, unfortunately. Wow. I mean, the pandemonium of Taylor Swift is undeniable. I mean, she has so many absolutely dedicated and diehard fans. Mm-hmm. The love that you felt in the crowd, I'm sure it it came from this place of so many other people coming from other places to try to get there and get a little taste of Taylor and get a little piece of that. There were probably people that were waiting outside of the arena in that crowd just listening that traveled to Seattle to come and see her. Did you did you get a sense that there were a lot of people that had come a long way just to get that little Taylor dose? Oh, absolutely. Even beforehand, I was at my part-time job on the weekend and helped a lady who was going to go see Taylor herself the <laughs> next weekend. Like, it was a big thing. I've read on TikTok and Twitter that people from like Peace River, Alberta had been traveling here or people who couldn't get tickets who were close to them in the States got tickets for this show. So they traveled, got a hotel room, you know, Um, all the money that goes into the outfits. Like it's quite the extravaganza when you're Mm -hmm. in there. Even we were trading um, friendship bracelets with each other, which was very, very fun. Yeah, just like the little camp ones that you would make. They had like lyrics on them or like little like, swifty things if like if you know you know and it was just like it was just such a community event like it was so wonderful and it was you were either in Seattle for a uh, apparently there was a baseball game or you were there for a concert I'll believe there was a baseball game if you say so. I, but I would be there Rumor for Taylor Swift myself. That the Blue Jays were there the same time I was but I don't know I didn't see any Blue Jays swag anywhere So I remember we were talking about this at the beginning of the week and you told me that you had read the set list before the show, which (laughs) I, I, I would have approached a concert very differently. I like to be completely surprised, but I mean, a three and a half hour set list, you're going to need to have to plan your bathroom breaks. So I can see (laughs) needing to maybe know what she was going to play when, was there anything that you were hoping that she was going to play that she didn't? Oh, man, I was really hoping we call it the era's tour, but she does not do any songs on her set list that are from her very first album. 
which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. It might be just to do the fact that she's had so many radio hits and stuff like that. But I was hoping for something from there. But she instead played um, a song called Everything Has Changed, which is so wonderful. I have a clip here and you can just hear the moment after the little bit of screaming, how the audience just throws right into the lyrics. Take a listen. thing about these surprise songs is that they're different every night so no other night so far has gotten everything has changed which is that what she's playing there i have goosebumps listening to that (laughs) because you can feel the excitement and i think to be part of a crowd like that that's that big and that's that dedicated and that that that's that excited i mean that's a really special experience This is obviously going to be your most memorable concert, right, Talia? Oh, absolutely. Right up there with the very first one that I went to, which was a Disney Channel group called the Cheetah Girls when I was about (laughs) eight years old or so. Yeah, you always remember your first. Yeah, that's that's always a special one. Was there there a best part? Can you narrow it down or is that an unfair question? Oh, all of it was so, like, for me to experience it for the first time, all of it was just goosebumps. Like, even her openers were wonderful, too. I think one thing for Seattle Night One specifically was that she's very close with her touring group. Right now, she's had Gracie Abrams and Haim, and she has a song with Haim called Nobody No Crime. Mm -hmm. And Seattle was the first night that they were joining the tour, and they played that song to start her Evermore era, which was the first time it had been played live with Haim and by Taylor since it's um, been released off of Evermore. So that was really special to know that I was in the audience and got to hear that song live for the first time. I'm happy for you, but I'm like seething with jealousy right now because I want to be there so badly. (laughs) I'm just, I'm hearing this and I'm hoping so badly that she decides to bring this show to Canada because she would have so many fans that would want to see it. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, How many times did you cry? Oh, a lot. Like kind of like <laughs> bits and uh, spurts throughout the night. And then I kind of realized at one point when she's when she first comes up and I was like, you know what? You've been waiting for this for a long time. Wipe those tears. You're going to dance. You're going <laughs> to scream and sing. And you can cry when it's done. But the t- right now is not the time for that. <laughs> I, I, It sounds to me, Talia, I have confidence in this that you made the absolute best of the experience and it was a very memorable one. Thank you so much for explaining it. Although I'm very jealous and I wish that I was there. I'm so glad that it was such a wonderful experience. I know you have a clip of Taylor speaking to the crowd too. So let's hear a little bit about what she has to say before we head to break. My goal is that after tonight, you think about the memories that we made here tonight on this beautiful Saturday evening. Oh, it's like I'm back there already. I bet it. My name is Taylor. You don't have to introduce yourself at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I know you made great memories, Talia. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about it tonight. Thanks so much, Chelsea.